If you would pick up your copies of God's Word with me and turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. It will be in verses 13 through 25 today. Again, Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 13. Listen carefully, because this is God's word for you today. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man, that is Jesus, as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh Lord, we thank you for this very important passage that you've brought to us today. I pray that we would be ready to hear, that you would empower me to explain it. I pray that you would move in all of our hearts, that we would obey it and do so to your glory. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Whenever you're trying to learn something new, one of the ways that you can tell that a piece of information is important is because it has been repeated over and over. When you are trying to learn something about woodworking, for instance, and you look in several different sources, and all of them happen to mention one thing, to keep your blades sharp as you work, you can conclude every source has said this. This must mean it's very important. We see this most practically in our own lives when we're going to purchase something, and we end into the endless sea of reviews as we're working through something. I remember recently, my wife and I had to look for a new dishwasher, and I had plunged into all of the reviews of various dishwashers, and that was just as fascinating as you no doubt believe it to be. And I would ignore something if a reviewer only mentioned, if one reviewer only mentioned one problem once. But I would take notice when someone would, when this same problem would show up in a product multiple times. I could conclude this was an important thing for me to pay attention to. Now here, the word of God is thankfully much different than dishwasher reviews. It's much more important. It's to the point where even if the Bible mentions something once, 
It's important. Not because of the number of times that it's been said, but who is saying it? So it is the word of God, after all. One time is enough for us to, it to be of critical importance. But it goes to show you that if that's true, how much more so when the word of God mentions something multiple times? We can conclude, okay, this must be very important. God has mentioned this many times over. We must pay attention to it. That's what we see in this passage here. This story of Jesus being exchanged for Barabbas is one of the few stories that's mentioned in all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Very often, Matthew, Mark, and Luke will have something, but John won't have it. He has different emphases. Or there'll be other times where John will mention something that the other three don't. But this is something that all four of them emphasize. So this must be something for us to need to pay attention to. And there are beautiful things for us to see, very practical things as well, as we look into this passage today. So as usual, as you can see in your outlines tucked into your bulletin, I have two things that I want us to see out of this passage. And some of those things we've actually hinted at already in our Old Testament reading in Psalm chapter 2. The first thing I want us to see out of this text is sin is irrational. Sin is irrational. And the second thing is God's grace is unexpected. So sin is irrational, yet God's grace is unexpected. And that's what we're going to see in our passage today. So we return where we left off from last time. Jesus has been examined by Pilate. People have brought Jesus to the Roman authorities, accusing him of all kinds of things, mostly trying to get them to believe that Jesus is trying to overthrow the Roman state. But Pilate has interviewed him and has found nothing even close to an insurrectionist. He's been sent to Herod, and Herod concurs with this decision and sends Jesus back to Pilate. He has now been exonerated twice in Roman courts. And Pilate gives this news to the people. The chief priests, the scribes, and now we see a crowd of people have begun to gather. They've taken interest in Jesus' court proceedings. And he tells them that there's been nothing deserving of death. It is found. But Pilate, being a politician, is trying to find something to help satisfy the people. He would rather just release Jesus, but instead he says, I will punish and release him. This is something that was actually, uh, it was not uncommon in Roman government. If a troublemaker was brought up to the Roman seat of power, but they hadn't really done anything to qualify for a, an execution, they would give a light whipping, which would help remind the perpetrator that don't get, don't get the attention of the Roman government. Keep your head down and you'll be fine. And I'm sure this is what Pilate was trying to think of as well. Here he has this person who's teaching things that Jewish people don't like. I'll give him a whipping, and hopefully that will get him to be quiet. The people will be happy that he has been punished in some way, and I can wash my hands of this whole affair. And this is what Pilate is expecting to happen, probably because it's happened many times before with previous criminals. But the people are not going to be persuaded. They are not satisfied with a light beating. And instead, they all, in verse 18, they cry out together, away with this man. 
which means they want him crucified. They want Jesus dead. And instead, they call and ask for someone else to be released. Now, the Gospel of Luke doesn't go into the detail that other Gospels do and mention that it was customary for Pilate to release one of the um, prisoners for the Passover. And they are invoking this custom and ask that Barabbas would be released. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Barabbas because this is really the only place that he's mentioned in ancient literature, so we just don't know. But what the scriptures provide for us is all that we really need to know, is that Barabbas has been thrown into prison because he has started an insurrection and got someone killed during that time. This is the person that they are calling for. Now, does this list of crimes sound familiar? Here, they are calling for the release of Barabbas, who has indeed been accused and convicted of the very crimes that they are accusing Jesus of doing, namely, trying to overthrow the Roman state. This goes to show you where the chief priests and people's concerns really are. This is not about politics. This is not about preserving the Roman Empire. This is about getting Jesus killed. Because they are asking for someone to be released who has already shown themselves to be very unfriendly to Rome. And they want this exchange. They want to take Barabbas' sins and put them on Jesus and to set Barabbas free. Now, Pilate is intent on releasing Jesus. He doesn't want to crucify Jesus, because crucifixion was about the worst way that you could be executed that was possible. The Romans had really perfected the art of the most torturous death possible. And in the crucifixions, this would be a death that would be stretched out over hours and sometimes even days, where someone would hang there. And the principal way someone is killed is not through blood loss, but through uh, restriction of oxygen. You're not able to breathe very well when you're being hung by your arms like that. So you're fighting for each breath until eventually your body just gives out on you and you drown in the middle of the air. This was a horrible way to die. This was usually reserved for terrible criminals and shameful things that were done. So the fact that the crowd is calling out not just for death, but through this kind of death is rather surprising. It's something that Pilate doesn't want to have. So he keeps trying to appeal to the people's rational side. He tries to reason with them and tells them what evil has he done. He hasn't done anything deserving of death, certainly not death, but crucifixion. So I'm going to punish and release him. Continuing to emphasize Jesus is innocent. Jesus is innocent. But the people persist. And they insist that he be crucified. Despite all reason, despite all logic and all rationality. What's something that we can learn from here? And I think it is that sin is irrational. These people want to get rid of Jesus. This is a sinful thing. And they will not be persuaded by any means of logic to be persuaded away from this. They have their desire, and they're going to follow through with it. And unfortunately, I think there is a certain amount of 
realization that we have to have of how much we fit into this crowd. Because our sin is no different. Whenever we sin, it is just as irrational as these people here. Because when you think about it, when you sin, who is it that you are opposing? You're opposing God. You're ever going to get away with that? No, of course not. You're not going to get away with that. God is all-powerful, and he's all-knowing, and he's all-wise. So you're not going to get away with anything. I mean, you might get away with things for a little while, but eventually we're all going to have a court date with God. There's no escaping that. We even find, as most people, don't, don't get away with opposing God here. In fact, it was interesting. I came across a clinical psychologist who wasn't a Christian, but he said, in my 20 years of practice, I have never seen anyone get away with anything. And he described it as like, when you twist the fabric of reality, eventually it will snap back on you. Might not do it immediately. But he says, in my practice, whenever someone comes in for some sort of an issue, I'll say, okay, you had this thing happen here. What happened before that? It's like, okay, that was this. Like, what happened before that? It was here. What happened before that? Ah, there's the twist. And again, secular psychologist. We don't get away with these things. So why do we insist on doing them anyway? Sin is irrational. There is no reason for it. And I think as we look at our world today, I find a lot of us are just really perplexed as to why people would do what they do. Why is it that Putin is trying to overrun millions of innocent people in Ukraine for a war that it doesn't seem like he's going to ultimately be able to win? Even if he does, he's not going to be able to occupy the country. Why does he persist in this thing? Or we see people who will try to cheat on their taxes, throw away a marriage. All of these things that we do, and we're like, why are they doing that? It's like, there is no why. It doesn't make sense. It never will make sense. Because sin is irrational. Or to put it another way, as Steve Lawson, a great and eloquent preacher, once said, sin makes you stupid. And it's very true. It's stupidity the whole way around, because when we sin, we are throwing away the wisdom of God. We are making the wrong choice when we oppose God. No matter how we can think about we can get this thing to the right choice at some point, every time we sin, we're making the wrong choice and we're going to hurt ourselves in some way, shape, or form. Sin is irrational. Sin makes us stupid. And we align ourselves with the devil, the one who hates us. And the one who's ultimately going to lose. It makes no sense. But that's what we see in this passage anyway. Is people persisting in something that is irrational. But yet, as we look into our next point, God's grace is unexpected. Indeed, God even works through irrational sin. It's not to say that God is the author of sin or God is the one who's forcing people to sin. It's not the case. But he is using their own sinful desires to advance his own will. And that's what we see when we pick up in verse 24. Here we find weak-kneed Pilate, who is governor of this area and has the Roman army at his back, but he is intimidated by this crowd of people. And instead decides to give in to their demands and turns Jesus over to be crucified. 
and instead releases Barabbas. And I think this is the main point. So I want to spend more of our time here. This passage, and this portion of it in particular, the exchange of Jesus for the sinner, I think this is the reason why it's mentioned so many times. Because it's a beautiful illustration of what Jesus is doing for all of us. It makes no sense. It's very unexpected that Barabbas would be released, this insurrectionist and murderer, and his crimes being put on Jesus instead. This is supposed to mirror who we are. We are Barabbas in this story. We are the ones who have committed this irrational sin. The ones who have stupidly opposed God. Plotted in vain, as we saw in Psalm 2. And yet Jesus is going to be sacrificed for us. He goes to the cross for us so that we could go free. Not because we deserve it. Because we don't. That's what Jesus offers to us. Now we might think... And indeed, as I was figuring out exactly how to phrase this second point, it was tempting to think that sin is irrational and so is grace. Grace doesn't make any sense. Why would he give this to us? But God's grace is not irrational. It's unexpected. But it's full of reason. God is not doing anything haphazardly or randomly. And because of that, we have such an assurance. And that's what I want us to explore as we look through this point, particularly as how God is using irrational sin to create rational grace. And he, if he does this, and we can see this in Ephesians chapter 1. So go ahead and turn there with me, if you would. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. There are a lot of different passages that we could turn to to show that God is indeed control of all details. Uh, If you would like to write down some of these to be able to read later, we don't have time to look at all of these as passages to show that the the Lord works in everything and does everything for his glory. for, For those passages, you can look at Isaiah 61, 21, Romans 11, 36. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Revelation 4.11, Psalm 33.11, Isaiah 11.24. All of these passages tell us that whatever it is that God has planned, he is going to execute. But there's one passage here, Ephesians chapter 1, that I want us to pay close attention to, particularly in verse 9. But I'm going to start in verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. All of this which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Notice here verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Do you see that in verse 9? 
Three times God is making the point, this is the plan, this is the plan, this is the purpose, this is my will. God isn't irrational in his grace, nor in opposition to a popular song is he reckless with his love. But indeed, he is focused with this grace. The reason why he can show us grace and it not be irrational is because Jesus has paid for our sin. It is irrational for God to just love sinners. But indeed, he has paid for those sinners. He's changed them. Not to be perfect people, but to have a perfect savior, a perfect representative for them. That's what Jesus is. God brings himself glory and honor by executing his righteous plans exactly in the way that he chooses to. Even this passage here, where the people are calling out for his death, we see Peter actually preaching that. In Acts chapter 2, 23, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God taking this irrational sin and moving it, working it to be a part of his will. That's why grace is unexpected. We don't see how God can work through irrationality. And perhaps that's why we're constantly searching for a reason for someone's sin. It's because maybe if we could figure out what that reason was, maybe we could see how we could get around that. But there's no reason to it. There's no logic to pick apart. And part of that is for us to look back and to rest on what God is going to do with that. We don't have to figure out why someone has done it this way. Instead, we can look to God and see how is he going to use that. So when you turn on the news this week and see more evil behavior and try to figure out how, why is this happening in our world? How could we stop it? If we could come up, change this one law, understand this person's point of view, maybe we could prevent it. We can't. There is no solution to sin that originates with us. It's with Christ. That's where our hope is. It's sure grace, not random, not irrational. God has his plan exactly for that, but it is unexpected. Why would God decide to come up with a solution to irrational sin? That's unexpected. It's wonderful. God has a reason for it. I don't know what it is but it's grounded in the deepest of hope. We don't deserve to have something like that done for us. Neither do these people who are calling out for his crucifixion. Have you ever wondered what happened to those people? Calling out for the crucifixion of Jesus and then to find out that he was in fact Lord and Messiah? Well, if you've ever wondered that, then join me in Acts chapter two, because we see them again. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. I wish we had time to look at the entire passage of 14 through 36, but to give you briefly the, the context of this, Peter is preaching. The Holy Spirit has descended onto him, and 
Timid Peter, who was at one point denying Jesus, is now preaching Jesus in the middle of the street. See the power of the Holy Spirit at work. And he's been laying out from the Old Testament the hope that Jesus provides. And then he gets to verse 36. And he brings it home to the people who are listening. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain... That God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, God and the promised Messiah. This Jesus, whom you crucified. That's direct. Laying out someone's sin. What's their reaction to it? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What can you do? When you've killed God's son. What hope is there for that? Outside of Jesus, there is no hope for that. And it's not just them. It's for us, too. We might not have been there shouting for Christ's crucifixion. But every time we sin, we say, crucify him. Because we want to do it our own way. And we would rather Jesus not be around to tell us otherwise. No, Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. He's just getting in my way. And I would like for him to be pushed aside. What hope is there for us? As R.C. Sproul had phrased it, who commit cosmic treason against the Lord of glory. As we see here, Lord and Christ... God and the promised one. This is the guy we have been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3. And as soon as he showed up, we killed him. And those of us on the other side of the cross who have gotten to see that, oh, Jesus was actually telling the truth. And he's been raised from the grave. And we still disobey him. See that irrationality playing out again? What hope is there for them? And what hope is there for us? Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter is not saying, well, hope that your case will be commuted. Maybe if God sees how sorry you are, perhaps he'll show you mercy. But I don't know. That would be the case if if God's grace was irrational. That would be the case if God's grace was random. But it's not. Christ has purchased for you forgiveness. And that is absolutely assured. And he calls you to receive it. If you come to him, Repentant, wanting to follow after him, you will receive forgiveness of sin. Not hope, not possibly, not if you can clean up your act long enough. You will receive that. That's a beautiful and unexpected gift. All because the Lord has worked through even irrational people to bring about our salvation. In fact, Phil 
Phil Riken, a wonderful commentator, as you no doubt know by this point, for as often as I've quoted him, he mentions that this was so much a part of the plan, it was as if the Father himself was in the crowd of people shouting, crucify him. Not because he hated his son, by no means, but because he loved his people and wanted to redeem his people. So what do we take away from all of this? Unexpected grace is for you. It's for those people that you think are irredeemable too. For those people that have sinned in your life and you figure there's no hope for that guy. There can be unexpected grace for them too. Redemption for you as well. So be bold. Take this to the people that you would think would have no dealings with God at all. And see what God's grace does. Because most of the time it's unexpected. And when we look at our own lives and we see our own sin, we can be honest with ourselves and say, this sin doesn't make any sense at all. In my own twisted mind, I can come up with some sort of rationalization for it. But this isn't what God wants. And this is going to bring about my destruction if I keep going with it. The choice is clear. And he calls us to make that today. So if you have not gotten right with the Lord, if there is something that you're holding in your life that you know you need to be rid of, something you need to stop doing or something you need to start doing, whatever that is, be confronted with the reality that what you're doing, there's no really good reason for it. If it's against God's word, it's going to break you. You're twisting that fabric of reality. It's going to snap back on you. There's no reason to continue doing that. There's no reason even to think, well, I'm in for a penny, in for a pound. I've already ruined my life far beyond what it can be repaired, so I might as well just keep going with it. No. God's grace is unexpected. He can reach into those areas that you don't think are possible. And those portions of life that have been hardened against God for years can be broken. Not because you can come up with a rationality, but because the Lord has brought you a Savior. You don't deserve it, but God can set you free. If you have any questions about that, I would love to speak to you afterward. Nothing would thrill me more than to be able to do that for you. Or if you happen to be watching us online or listening to podcasts, I say, please reach out to us. I'd love to talk to you about how you can get right with your Lord and Savior. This grace is unexpected, but it's grace for you. you say, well, how do I know it's for me? It's like, well, can you hear me? That's for you. There's a reason why you're listening to this. It's because it's for you. God has sent this to you, this wonderful gift. Don't push it aside. Embrace it. And find the Savior who loves you so much. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time that we've had together, for this wonderful explanation and illustration of Barabbas being freed. Lord, we don't deserve to have our sin put on your son. And we don't deserve to have his righteousness put on us so that we could be freed.
But I ask that this would be something that would sink into our hearts. That we would see your beautiful reason for forgiving us. The death and the resurrection of your son. And pray that we would leave behind the irrationality of our sin. That we would be able to embrace you and love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.